Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a scholarly meeting. I'm your host today. I'm Hazel Zerbe, and today I have with me Dr. Janice Dewey. She is one of the professors here at Loma Linda University, and her research is focused on the intersection of gender, religion, and healthcare, and also how women's religious and cultural identities shape the ways that we navigate and negotiate fertility and the, the infertility experiences. She's also currently um, researching into issues that affect Black women and reproductive health, as well as how, re- how religious identity and cultural identity can influence those. Dr. Dwight, we're really happy to have you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Hazel. It is really good to be part of this conversation. Thank you for inviting me. We're really happy to have you. So can you tell us a little bit more about um, just your backstory? How did you become interested in this field of study and what led you to your current um, academic interests? Sure. So um, by training, I am a biblical scholar and clergywoman. So my undergraduate and master's degrees were preparing me for um, parish ministry, uh, being a pastor um, in the church. And um, as I went along, I was very interested in um, the academic side as well of religion and theology. And so I took the opportunity to sort of delve deeper, um, ended up doing a PhD in Hebrew Bible, um, what Christians refer to as the Old Testament. And through my studies, I began to become um, more immersed in scripture and really understanding that, you know, these are the narratives of people, um, individuals and communities. And that means that we're talking about culture, language, customs, traditions, um, people's lived experiences. Mm -hmm. And so that got me really interested um, in, in, in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. And I think many times people are sort of, people struggle to marry the ideas of me being a scholar, but also researching in the areas of um, infertility and fertility. Um, Not many biblical scholars are doing that. Um, But as uh, you know, and probably our listeners, some of our listeners would know that, you know, a large part of the Hebrew Bible is concerned with issues of fertility and infertility so I feel like I'm right at home <laughs> yes I I would totally agree I did I did recall um you know I haven't seen any scholars I believe besides you I'm not mm-hmm. that I've done that much research but that are talking about these topics but I do think that they're very important for us to talk about so just to get us going um, into the conversation so what what exactly or how exactly does gender and healthcare intersect with religion? One of the things that we find is that religion, spirituality plays such a fundamental role in many people's lives. And 
it impacts the way that we view ourselves as men and as women. Um, and in addition to that, our gender also impacts our religious and spiritual expression. And so mm-hmm. this connection, this relationship between um, gender and religion is something that really um, is worthy of ex- exploration and examination. Now, when you take into account, for example, that um, when we look at major religious traditions, we see how the we see the gender composition of them, and many of the religious groups uh, represented here in America, for instance, um, are majority women. Mm-hmm. So, besides Islam. Judaism, uh, which in the research that's come out uh, records more male adherents, when we look at the Christian uh, religion and different denominations, we find out that many of these denominations are made up of more women followers than male. And so Mm -hmm. the question then again becomes, how are these women's lives represented, valued within the faith communities to which they belong. Uh, In the Christian, in many Christian denominations, there is a heavy representation of uh, male leadership, but yet the majority of lay uh, people, volunteers who serve the churches and the, the communities, we find are women. And so there's an Mm -hmm. interesting relationship um, in religious communities about gender and leadership, gender and uh, volunteers or um, those who serve. And all of this is important um, to discuss. But then the added piece is how does my religion or my spiritual identity then not only impact my my career my education and so on but also what impact does it play or what role does it play in my health how does Mm -hmm. it empower me how does it equip me are there particular beliefs religious beliefs uh, values that I hold that is able to nurture my health or encourage me to seek access or even provide resources to help me be able to seek the access that I need. And so I argue that this relationship between uh, gender, religion, health and healthcare should be you know, given more attention and really explored if we are truly serious about women's health. So in your experience, in your research, in your Mm -hmm. um, just academic discovery, what have you seen to be the most um, just real or practical um, effect of just examining and studying this relationship? How entrenched our religious beliefs, our cultural beliefs are, and the, the way that it is so um, organic to us, it, 
it's 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 very subconscious and so Mm -hmm. many times uh we do not process it until you know perhaps someone asks probing questions and so on and so forth so I have found that uh one of the areas that I'm very interested in is how in the religious community the programs Um, and the liturgy, that is the services, the sacred services of the Mm -hmm. faith community, how those actually are used either to educate or not educate uh, women regarding their health. Mm. Um, And so for me, um, as someone who trained as clergy, um, what I'm one thing I'm interested in is if you are in a faith community and, you know, there are only maybe three or four weekends uh, in a year where there's a focus on women's, uh, honouring women, celebrating women, um, recognising the, the achievements of women, both in the local and global context, that to me is is quite inadequate because what it tells yeah. me is that probably that's going to be the only three or four weekends in the year where the faith community, the faith leaders in that community are going to be intentional about bringing um, realities and issues in women's lives to the fore. So what I am I am saying is that one of the reasons why we need to have more representation of women in leadership in these faith communities is because women understand other women mm-hmm. or or at least they may be able to begin asking questions of other women to also educate themselves about what their fellow women are experiencing in life. And this representation then will hopefully make a difference in the amount of space and the amount of time that is dedicated to promoting uh, women's health within faith Mm -hmm. communities. We know, we know this uh, from the research that uh, in certain communities, what spiritual leaders Uh, preach, teach and model becomes very impactful for congregants. And so if we can start to see faith communities as another avenue to to educate and to promote women's health, then I think, you know, we will really um, have more of a, a meaningful impact. You know, I uh, I grew up in a pretty conservative African church community, mm-hmm. and growing mm-hmm. up, I I think I only remember us having an event that was centered around women probably once or twice mm-hmm. <laughs> throughout the the whole wow. year. And usually, whenever that happened, of course, it's the women who are in charge; they're directing the activities, yes. that kind of thing. But yeah, often it was just that that one or two or three times that we recognize the women and appreciate them and talk about mm-hmm. is- issues that concern women. But for the rest of the year, it's, you know, it's back to business as usual. And I feel like um, as you were talking, my mind was just going down um, 
just the the path of wondering not just for women you know there are other groups in the church that i feel like are not as mm-hmm. acknowledged or as recognized and you know yes. who really knows how not acknowledging or recognizing or seeing the issues that affects them is actually playing into all of this that i think that this is a really fascinating um concept mm-hmm. so we're gonna shift gears a little bit more and just kind of delve more into the topic of fertility and infertility and just women's religious and cultural identities and how mm-hmm. that influences mm-hmm. it so just as a brief background how did you how did you get interested in this fertility conversation specifically so uh as i began to uh go further in my um master's uh, training there in in Hebrew Bible Old Testament, I really became more aware of the fact that you have these narratives um, which are concerned about a person, a couple, being able to have children. And so mm-hmm. we think about people like Abraham and Sarah, um, Jacob and his wife, Rachel. We think about um, Manoah and his wife, um, Hannah, who is not able to have a child, even though she Mm. really desperately wants one. And I looked at these and I thought, it's interesting to me that within a body of text, which many people hold to be scripture, sacred revelation, Mm-hmm. that you have all these stories, these narratives about people trying to have a child and mm-hmm. that and that um, within those stories, there is also presentation of the kind of cultural and social meanings of fertility and infertility. And so when Sarah wants to have a child, um, she sees her lack, her, her inability to have a child as a direct intervention or action of God. So she says to Abraham, her husband, God has prevented me from having children. And mm. what does Sarah do? She really wants children. And so she is prepared to um, take her servant, uh, Hagar, her slave and Mm -hmm. to tell her husband you need to sleep with her and Sarah says specifically right so that I will be built up by her that's the literal translation from the Hebrew so that I will be built up by her what does Sarah mean by being built up by Hagar well what Sarah is saying is that even in a patriarchal context where inheritance is determined by patrilineal descent as a woman she still needs to build her legacy her security Mm. because in that time and in that context if you are a woman and you do not have a child it is a very tragic state of affairs so as we look through 
the Hebrew Bible, we see similar narratives about the desire to have a child and that being challenged by, you know, an inability to do so and the different ways that women try to negotiate and to navigate that. So another a quick example would be um, in the story of Rachel, who is the favorite beloved wife of Jacob. The only thing is she's really beautiful. She's Mm -hmm. the favorite wife, but she cannot have children. And one day she tells Jacob, you know, give me children or I'm going to die. Mm -hmm. Um, And Jacob sort of, you know, flippantly responds to her. Well, am I God? Right. Am I God that gives children? And that's all he says to her. Now, what ends up happening is she also takes uh, her servant and makes her a surrogate. Um, And so Jacob also sleeps with her servant so that she can have um, children. What we learn from from this is that um, Rachel was so desperate to have children. And in fact, the irony of Rachel's narrative is that um, after her first child, she conceives and has a second child. And it is actually in childbirth that she dies. Hmm. So that's so. So when we read these stories, they reflect even today the realities of women who are trying to navigate and negotiate their own fertility. Those who um, make a choice not to have children, that's absolutely fine, that's their choice. And then you have a whole group of women who really want children and who are trying to do all that they can do within their power, within their resources to realize this dream. So I I got really interested in that from studying, you know, the Hebrew Bible. Um, But additionally, as a pastor, I would have uh, congregants, you know, members who would come and confide in me about their own fertility challenges. I had um, experiences of uh, people in my congregation who had miscarriages, uh, stillbirths. Um, And so from the pastoral perspective, I would say for the last several years, I've definitely had that involvement with people who have been through um, such traumatic experiences as well. So it sounds like... um... In a biblical, from the biblical perspective, a woman's worth is heavily tied to her reproductive ability. Mm-hmm. So her 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 self esteem, her status, um, and probably even how her future is determined mm-hmm. by her ability to bear children. Um, and in my from my background, so I'm also I'm also I also come from an African background. Yes. And I know that um, growing up being married, mm-hmm. um, having children is a it's a really big deal. Yes. Um, you can't 
essentially not that you can't be a woman but you're not given the same level of respect mm -hmm. or um just acknowledgement that someone who has had many children would have if you were someone who had no children mm -hmm. or was unmarried mm -hmm. so how has that um how being from you know having a Ghanaian um, mm -hmm. African background yourself as well as a British background how would you say that the different like how would you put I guess the differences or the similarities side by side and co comparing um, the biblical perspective of mm -hmm. um, infertility, um, the African perspective of infertility versus the Western perspective of infertility, especially today in our times when people are, like you were saying, making a choice to not have mm -hmm. children. Mm -hmm. Great question, Hazel. And um, yes, I absolutely agree. Um, as a Ghanaian British woman, I share many similar similarities in terms of culture uh, with with your cultural background too, um, Hazel. And I would definitely agree that there is definite uh, value and honour placed on uh, childbirth. Um, and fertility and that this is something that um, is you know ingrained in in people we're socialized um, in that kind of cultural context to really honor this kind of this uh, rite of passage um, and I would say also that I know that you know in other non-western traditional cultures uh, that there's a similar uh, that is a similar reality. I think for me, as you were asking me, um, I think for me, my cultural background gave me a sensitivity to certain elements of these narratives, these biblical narratives that I don't think others, probably not having that cultural background, um, mm. have really seen. And so... Um, I wrote my dissertation in this area and um, have since published a book um, on this where I have argued um, in this work that basically the Western um, biomed, you know, biomedical definition, right? The mm -hmm. allopathic definition of infertility doesn't really you know take into account all the cultural and social meanings tied to fertility and tied to infertility so that really and truly in our healthcare system right we we have so segmented and specialized this that um many people who are going into this sort of specialty are really not aware of um, the, the deep meanings of fertility, right, for the patients mm -hmm. that potentially they are going to see. So as you rightly said, it is not just about delivering a child, but it is about the rituals connected to that rite of passage right it's mm -hmm. about the kinds of um, meanings and status in the community uh, in some cultures um, to make our listeners aware for those who don't know in some cultures in, in some African cultures you once you have a child your name takes second seat right and you are <laughs> yeah. now referred to as 
the mother of, you know, so Mama Sarah or Mama mm -hmm. Sally, you know, Mama Janice or Mama Hazel, right? This mm -hmm. becomes how people call you. So if you reach a certain stage and everyone is still calling you Janice, right? Just the, just the act of someone calling your name can re-traumatize you or can yes. be a way that certain people in the community can uh, diminish you or marginalize you. So I think that when we come from these cultural backgrounds and we are reading these scriptures in that light, um, or even when we are not reading scripture, but we are looking at people's lived realities today and we are, we, we are sharing these insights, um, we hope that this can really get through to our healthcare professional students and mm -hmm. our professionals who are actually practicing so that as they are encountering people in these uh, journeys of um, fertility and infertility, they actually begin to understand, begin to gain um, some sensitivity for the actual meanings you know, of, of fertility and infertility for that individual, for that couple. Myself being a medical student, a big, huge um, part of our education mm -hmm. is focused on empathy and empathizing with patients and being able to see things from their point yes. of view and not mm -hmm. having had any children myself. I And, you know, a lot of people in medicine are usually at the age by the time that they're practicing where they have had children. But the, the, the experience of infertility, mm -hmm. I would say, is not something that is common to everyone or to a lot of people. And I think that yeah, mm -hmm. I think that this is a really important conversation because, um, like as you were saying, there are it's just such a far-reaching thing, and having a physician that understands, or yes. maybe not by firsthand, by way of firsthand experience, but can at least intellectually, you know, grasp the gravity of the mm -hmm. situation, I think would go a long, long way in promoting just an an mm -hmm. optimum environment for these kinds of kinds of things. So I wanted to talk a little bit. Um, th so this is kind of, I guess, Definitely. one of the, the meatier parts of this um, episode today that I really just wanted us to take time to flesh out is this, and this is also part of your mm -hmm. research that you're doing, is this huge topic right now on the reproductive health and mortality yes. uh, of black women in American society. And this is this is actually a really important topic. And just to cite a recent example, mm -hmm. there was, um, I don't know if you read about this on the news, but there was, um, I believe she was a chief resident, a black woman here in the US mm -hmm. that died doing childbirth. And, and you can probably speak to this a lot better than I can, but the statistics mm -hmm. on the mortality rates of black women um, during childbirth and yeah. just the overall uh, the overall data surrounding our reproductive health and um, just those conversations is very is very shocking. So just to give some background to our listeners, why why is this important to talk about? Why should anyone um, care about this? Thank you, Hazel. 
I, I hope that as we are hearing that story again, as you said, we will feel a little bit of that shock. I think, you know, as you said, empathy is is a huge part of, of medical education. Uh, one of the things that we are realizing is without the awareness that these things are going on, um, we cannot sort of invite mm-hmm. people to have this empathy and have that empathy not just be a sort of emotional reaction, but actually lead to um, systematic change and reform. And so one of the things that we um, many people don't realize is that the maternal mortality, the, the kind of racial and ethnic disparities around maternal health in this country is just absolutely staggering. When we think about the fact that mm-hmm. black women are about three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than their white counterparts. Three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than our white counterparts. And, you know, I want our listeners to to note that when we talk about pregnancy-related um, causes. We're talking about this huge gap of time, right, between um, the time period that covers pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about delivery, but then we're also talking about up to one year postpartum. So this is a huge gap of time. And what we're saying is that within this gap of time, mm. black women are three times more likely than their white counterparts to die from pregnancy related causes now when we when we hear such a statistic we have to understand that race and systemic racism is so ingrained within our healthcare systems that it has uh, been normalized so that when when people hear this, some people will not even imagine that this has something to do with racism, systemic racism. So a population that has historically mm. um, systematically been disenfranchised, marginalized, um, not had access to certain quality um, health care, we are saying that in 2020, they are still three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes. Now, human beings have been doing pregnancy since the beginning of time. The medical uh, profession has been working with pregnancy, you know, for ages and ages, and we are still in a place where a particular part of the population is three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than their white ca- white uh, counterparts. And so what uh, researchers are observing, and uh, this statistic that I've given, our listeners can uh, see this on the um, CDC website. There are other uh, research that's been done uh, sharing this information. What we learn from this one is that racial and ethnic disparities in maternal health 
are very real. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's not the figment. Uh, it's not a figment of the imagination of a particular group of people. It is very real. And we need to do something about it. Now, there are different factors that uh, researchers are looking at. But one key thing that I want to lift up is the fact that black women, uh, because of systemic racism, black women encounter something um, known as intersectionality. And this reality has been clearly um, brought to the the academic community, uh, to the world by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, Professor Crenshaw is a legal scholar and, you know, wrote this seminal article in the uh, 80s about intersectionality. And she argued that black women, by virtue of the fact that they are they face gender discrimination, but they also face racial discrimination. And then there's issues of class and, and, and so on, economics, that black women's lives are severely impacted by the combination of these types of discrimination. So that you can have, Hazel, as you gave the example, so that you can have someone who is a chief resident okay chief resident a medical doctor who has had all this education um who holds a prestigious um profession and yet and still she can still be subject to this reality She can still be subject to this reality. One of the things that we know in health disparities research, um, one of the things that we know is that as minority women are communicating with their healthcare providers, as they are in places of, as they are in uh, healthcare institutions seeking treatment, um, medical intervention, that their words oftentimes do not carry the same weight as those of their white counterparts. So when a black female patient tells her physician, tells her nurse, the healthcare professionals attending her, that she is in severe pain, she is less likely to be believed than is her white counterpart. When a black woman is seeking treatment and intervention and she tells her healthcare professional, something doesn't feel right. I don't feel good. I thought you said this wasn't how I was supposed to feel while getting this medication or this treatment. She is less likely to be paid attention to for her word to be um, acted upon with uh, urgency or with immediacy. And so this is one issue that we've got to really address in medical education as we are, um, and in healthcare professionals, as we're training healthcare professionals, is to really allow people to understand 
um, the ways in which they receive communication from others. Okay, and this this uh, example that I gave about the pain levels of uh, black and minority women being disbelieved or being ignored, uh, it, it, you know, this isn't my my example. This is born out in in recent research that we have. And so this needs to be part of the awareness in medical education that when you have patients who are who are mm-hmm. speaking to you, what types of stereotypes and biases do you have in your mind that potentially could be blocking you from really hearing and attending to your patient as that patient needs? Yeah, I, I think that... So this is actually just such a huge topic and something that I feel like we could spend a whole other podcast episode talking about. But I think one thing that I personally have just gotten from my own reading and just talking to other people is that it's just so multifaceted. So the impact that racism Mm -hmm. has on this as well as just other factors like socioeconomic, um, access to care, those kinds of things. Um, those things play a role, but there's also just mm-hmm. outside of the window of um, pregnancy and the post postpartum period, there's also things that come before that. I remember reading um, an article some time ago that yes. um, was talking about the daily micro or macro stresses that black people face as a result of racism and that how those stresses compound Mm -hmm. to just deep to just make us overall unhealthier you know because it's scientific fact that if Mm -hmm. your body is under stress for prolonged periods of time there is there will for a fact be adverse um, effects on those on 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 the people that are suffering those stresses so i i i think that this this has a lot to do both with you know just those factors that lead up to the the period of pregnancy to the discrimination to the biases to the lack of um, empathy to the lack of listening and understanding to not being taken seriously to um, probably also just a lack of understanding on the parts of physicians just how all these things Absolutely. come together and play a role in this and I, th- I, I, I think that if for anyone not just for the people who care about about ethics because I think mm-hmm. this is actually a pretty serious ethical issue but like I think that this is important for for everyone to care about because it's 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 a human thing you know just as as easily as um we would rally emotionally and physically to the aid of um someone that we saw that was um in danger or at risk I think that this is just as worthy you know of um the concern of the public of people as anything else Absolutely. And I would just add to that, Hazel, that um, the, the, the issue really needs to be uncovered. And then we need to really, as a community, um, whether that means, whether community means 
being part of a particular healthcare profession, mm-hmm. um, whether community means faith community, family, you know, what have you. But we all need to have the conversation and really, really ask ourselves truly, does this bother me? Mm-hmm. You know, does it bother me that a group in our nation, in our society, that black women uh, who may be a sister, who may be a neighbor, who may be a church member, um, who may be a daughter-in-law, you know, a a friend, does it bother me that this kind of travesty really is is still happening in the year 2020? Mm -hmm. What we know is that um, in terms of infertility, Black women, the research currently is saying that black women are twice as likely to have fertility issues than their white counterparts. Now, one of the reasons uh, for that, and I like the fact that you emphasized, you know, that when we're talking about these issues, there are um, multiple factors and layers to be Mm -hmm. considered. Um, so one of those layers is the the um, the fact that fibroids, uterine fibroids, um, have a disproportional impact on Black women. Hmm. And I am pleased that you brought up this reality of the microaggressions and micro insults that Black women uh, daily encounter. And face, and one of the things that we know in health disparities research is that being black, you know, the experience of being part of a historically marginalized group, disenfranchised group, has real health impact. Mm-hmm. And and one recent um, article that. Um, the lead author was uh, Dr. Williams out of um, Harvard uh, Public uh, School of Public Health, where um, the article said that being black in America has serious um, health outcomes, serious negative health outcomes. Yeah. And that, you know, this is a Harvard uh, study basically reiterating the, the reality that um, we need to recognize the allostatic load, right? The, the, the real impact that racism have, has on uh, black people. And when we come to black women, we realize that there's this disproportional impact um, of, of uterine fibroids. And within this, talking about health disparities, Hazel, within uh, fibroids, if we compare white women mm-hmm. um, and, and black women, um, there's, a, there's a treatment that is sometimes uh, given. So the hysterectomy um, given to treat or resolve these uterine fibroids, when we take the white women and black women who have had these, we recognize that even within that there is a disparity wow and the disparity is that um the disparity is that 
while they have all had hysterectomies, black women are more likely to receive the open hysterectomy, while white women are more likely to receive minimally invasive hysterectomies. Interesting. Okay, and this is... um, If you'd like to read this article, it's by uh, Robinson et al. And it's uh, it's, uh, US black women shift of hysterectomy to outpatient uh, uh, settings. Okay, Um, this is 2017. So this research has come out for a few years now. This isn't new. But what they were discovering is that even when white women and black women have all had hysterectomies, black women were more likely to receive the type of hysterectomy that was more invasive. So, so what we are what we are um, bringing awareness to is the fact that uh, black women's experiences of reproductive health care many times is very different from that of their white counterparts, even when they are present with similar conditions or similar issues. Mm-hmm. And coming back to uh, uterine um, fibroids, the, the lived reality of black women, um, you know, who are more likely uh, to have these larger and uh, they're, li- they're more likely to have larger and more uterine uh, fibroids than their white uh, counterparts. And so that means things like excessive bleeding, fertility issues, pregnancy complications, um, it also means that there is a kind of um, narrative that, well, that's just what black women have. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you you deal with it when the reality is, is that, um, as you were saying, we have not begun to really educate the wider community that there is more likelihood that black women are having uterine uh, fibroids um, and that this is connected to social factors environmental factors you know that we can't take racism out of the picture to do so would not be looking at the holistic picture yeah yes I, I I completely agree um, you know, one of the things that I've, it's kind of an idea that's just always been on my mind is I've, I've always wanted to compare um, just certain, especially when we talk about health disparities. And um, in medical school, we learn about how so many things are more common in, you know, quote unquote, black people. But I wonder how much of it is common in black people as is common in black people in america versus black people Mm -hmm. who live somewhere else where it's Mm -hmm. they're the majority and racism um may not be uh as much of a determining factor as something else like tribalism or something else Mm -hmm. so i've kind of always wanted because i've always wondered it's easy for us to say you know like you were saying black women just happen to have a higher case of fibroids than um, mm-hmm. white women or compared to another racial group. And, you know, I, I often wonder, you know, how much is, of that is actually true? Um, but, you know, that's a, that's a conversation for a different podcast. <laughs> um, but what, what I did want to just ask in closing, um, mm-hmm. 
what what is the if you were to leave one central point with our listeners something that you want them to consider um to go go forth <laughs> considering or thinking about um or that you want them to come away with what would be what would be the most central thing that you would want our listeners to gain from this podcast that as communities we have a work to do of integrating um, of, of, of really understanding how people's lived experiences, how the social, environmental um, factors really do impact people's um, health and in particular women's health. Um, that we need to be aware that um, these stories that we hear, like that of um, the chief resident that you um, you reminded us of, these are not isolated incidences. Mm-hmm. They are not spectacular in the sense that they, you know, happen once in a blue moon. These are real stories that unfortunately repeat themselves over and over and over again. Different names different neighborhoods but the the narrative of racial disparities in healthcare is is real mm-hmm. um, I would challenge all of us to think about um, because our healthcare systems still express systemic racism because systemic racism is still part of the way that we do healthcare in some instances, um, that determines the way that people can access healthcare. That as communities, we cannot leave health awareness and health education only to the realm of the healthcare institutions. To do so would mean that we are going to continue hearing some of these stories Mm -hmm. rather I am inviting people particularly within communities of faith to consider the ways in which our liturgy our programs our priorities as spiritual communities can bring awareness to the lived experiences of women and and in particular the lived experiences of women who come from historically Uh, marginalized and disenfranchised um, groups uh, such as black women and I think that if we can see this as one of the priorities um, that we have as faith communities we will be able to have a meaningful impact so the next time that um, for the leaders listening the next time that you um, have the opportunity to preach or to um, host a conference, consider, consider raising these issues, consider inviting professionals who can bring awareness to these issues, and not only medical professionals who can talk about this, but also professionals who can bring awareness to the, the social and cultural racial and ethnic economic factors that are really impacting um, and shaping women's health and I think if we can 
commit to doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, if we can look across um, at each other, even virtually, as we're in in this uh, age of virtual communication, if we can commit to doing that, to really creating space to raise this awareness and provide this education, we can make a meaningful contribution to women's health, to black women's health today. Thank you so much, Dr. Dwight. That was a very, very, um, very, very powerful conversation. And I'm really glad that we're having that. And I'm really grateful to you for being here and for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much, Hazel. And uh, thank you to our listeners. Uh, Please join us again on the next episode of A Scholarly Meeting. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode.